Hello, welcome to the Thinking Global podcast by E-International Relations, the world's leading open access website for students and scholars of international relations. My name is Kieran O'Meara and today I'm going to be your co-host and we have a cracking episode lined up for you with Mohamed Bahroun from the Dubai Public Policy Research Centre. I'm also going to be joined by my co-host Ismail Aden. Ismail is a Kenya-based student from Somalia studying international relations at the University of Nairobi in Kenya. So Ismail has lived in Kenya for the past decade and his particular academic interests rest with religious extremism, political violence and their consequences. Hi Ismail, great to have you back bud. Hi Kerwin, great to be back. Thanks for doing this one with me, bud. It should be really, really interesting. So before we go anywhere, whilst you're listening to this, can you just please click on that little like, share, subscribe or follow button that you'll be seeing next to the description box on whatever platform you're using. Please, please click on that. It would mean the world to us. That also means that you get all the content that Thinking Global uploads sent straight to your device in a notification the moment that it's uploaded. So go on treat yourself. <laughs> Click on that little subscribe or follow button. <laughs> Alongside that, don't forget to go and visit e-international relations at e-info.ir. You'll be able to find loads of content there. And alongside that, don't forget to check out e-international relations on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. So today we're going to be talking with Mohamed Bahroun from the Dubai Public Policy Center about Middle Eastern politics, which should be really, really interesting. Mohamed's Twitter handle is located in the description box of this episode if you want to contact him on social media. Mohamed Abdul Rahman Barun is Director General of the Dubai Public Policy Research Center. His areas of expertise include geostrategy, reputation and soft power, and public policy and international relations in relation to the Middle East. And today we're talking about his notion of the quantum Middle East. Okay, hit it. Hi, Mohammed. Thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast, Mr. Barun. It's absolutely lovely to have you with us today. We're so excited to talk to you about your work. Thank you very much, and thank you for the kind invitation. Okay, so we'll start with something a little bit light. You wrote an article titled The Quantum Politics of the Middle East. How do we explain this quantum approach to geopolitics? A light question. <laughs> Uh, great. <laughs> the, the title is interesting, uh, maybe because it came in as an afterthought. But the idea is that things are happening uh, in this region a, a, at a, uh, a very strange dynamics, different than uh, what we've witnessed since the inception of uh, the modern history of this region. Uh, so uh, what I describe as quantum politics, which is not uh, uh, my coinage, uh, is uh, this ability to uh, let go of some of the uh, old dynamics that has governed politics in the region, particularly this concept of uh, uh, the concept of uh, geopolitics as as the basics of everything that we do. The second concept, which is the concept of a networked world order or an apolar world order where polarity is not uh, the way people divide themselves on one camp or another. 
And I think that the third one is a new conception of what security means, which is away from the concept of enemies, walls, soldiers, uh, that has governed the way people draft their national policy, uh, national security policies. So uh, in, in a nutshell, these are the three main variables that seem to be driving what we describe nowadays as a de-escalation strategy that has gave birth to uh, a strange uh, but uh, somewhat effective uh, policies in, in the region so far. Okay, interesting. <laughs> interesting. So what I'd like to talk about now, what I'd like to ask you about, is the relationship between a lot of states in the Middle East and Israel. So lately, four Arab countries normalized relations with Israel, and by all accounts, others are expected to follow suit. Also, in the last year, there were Arab-Iran rapprochements. How do these developments relate to the quantum approach to geopolitics? I think what you've uh, just mentioned uh, is an example, is possibly one of those uh, very clearest manifestations of how uh, these three principles apply, uh, of quantum politics apply in, in this sense. I mean, let's start looking at uh, the uh, Abrahamic Accords. The Abrahamic Accords were signed between UAE, uh, Bahrain, and Israel on the one side. Now, uh, naturally, this region, since people, you know, uh, grew up, have had sort of two enemies. Uh, it was uh, uh, Israel because of the occupation of Palestine. It has always been depicted as the enemy. And of course, Iran, uh, because of the uh, war of, with, with Iraq, but later on the threat from the Islamic Republic. And the Abrahamic Accords, that concept of peace has been changed. Now, given there was peace before between Israel and uh, Egypt and Israel and Jordan, what is different is that the, the, the Abrahamic Accords is peace between countries who do not share borders. And those countries uh, have uh, uh, not been directly involved in, in a conflict. Uh, so the fact that uh, there was no land swap in, in the agreement, there was no border agreement. So this concept of uh, uh, geography being the major dynamism of conflict has not been part of, of, of this uh, uh, agreement. What we've seen on the other side is that an, a tendency to reduce this dichotomy of friend and foe the enemy and, uh, you know, the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict started as a conflict between two states, then grew up to become a conflict between all Arabs and Zionism, then became a conflict between um, Muslims and Jews. And I think this approach has reduced that uh, conflict back to its basis of political conflict between the Israelis and Palestinians that need to be resolved on, on, on a negotiation table. Uh, but it has replaced that with a way of getting Israel to be seen as part of the region, where the region does not see it as an enemy. That opened up ways for exchange of uh, uh, goods, people, money, information. That has reduced a lot of those uh, old uh, constraints uh, thinking about uh, an enemy. 
And I think the same thing is also applying now to uh, uh, the rapprochement between the GCC and, and Iran. Uh, again, uh, if uh, there is a country in this region that could call Iran an enemy, it's possibly the UAE because Iran occupy islands, uh, or this is the way we see it. Uh, now, looking at Iran as a potential uh, a part of a, a connectivity agenda is changing that type of approach where security, uh, fighting over land precedes the, the potential of uh, economic cooperation. And in, in this sense, uh, those are, uh, you know, very obvious ways where uh, even though Iran has always been seen as part of the axis of evil, and uh, Iran have also seen people who are close to the U.S. as far away from Iran and vice versa, uh, those relationships are developing between countries that have the strongest relationship with the U.S., which means that this is not an ideological uh, center of gravity that makes people belong to one camp or another. This is uh, practically a sort of a... Uh, relationship built on uh, areas of cooperation that hasn't been seen before because of, of the different layers of the conflict, be it the geopolitical layer or even the identity layer, uh, looking at Iran as a, as a Shia uh, country uh, where we are uh, seen as Sunni uh, Muslims. Uh, those old constraints are now being melted, so to speak, and not becoming uh, a constraint as they used to be. Hmm, interesting, interesting. The Middle East has had a complex history of conflicts and cooperation. How are these latest political realignments expected to affect these regional complexities, particularly the Israel-Iran and the Israel-Palestine tensions? I think this is a wonderful question, uh, mainly because it looks at what is uh, uh, possibly the value of such an approach. If we look at uh, the Israeli-Palestinian tension first, uh, people sometimes look at the Abrahamic Accords and think maybe this is a replacement of uh, this idea of uh, uh, the Arab Peace Initiative or even the uh, an attempt to resolve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Uh, and actually it's not, it's pretty much the same approach. The idea is peace for peace. And the only difference between the Arab Peace Initiative and the Abrahamic Accord is that the Arab Peace Initiative was sort of a, a cash payment, if you want. You take all and you pay all, uh, and which was extremely difficult because of the need to establish trust after decades long of, of a struggle. The Abrahamic Accords take a milestone payment approach where there's a down payment and people can build up that relationship until it gets there. So uh, if, if you've seen, for instance, the uh, agreement between uh, Israel and Jordan on uh, electricity for water, uh, that is an approach where building trust is based on huge issues like uh, energy security and water security. And these are issues that transcend Israel and Jordan to the whole region. Now, coming to Israel and Iran, this is one of those major uh, 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 you know, uh, tensions in the region. Uh, but if you see that, you know, in, in the same way UAE is developing its relationship with uh, Israel, it's also developing its relationship with Iran. 
the same thing is happening with Saudi Arabia. It's developing its relationship with Iran. But that's not a zero-sum uh, equation. It is still developing its relationship with Israel. Uh, and I think this is a bridge-building mechanism where that connectivity is being established step-by-step, uh, step, which would definitely eventually resolve more, um, you know, some of those uh, more chronic uh, tensions and uh, struggles that we've had in, in this region. And if you want to take that even further, you can take it all the way to places where uh, something like uh, the South China Sea, where uh, deconflection is needed in highly militarized approach. If you start thinking about where does this quantum politics can be applied, it can be applied in places like South China Sea, it can be applied in places like Kashmir, Jammu and Kashmir. These are places where those tensions have been there, but they have been changed. Now, there has been other examples of, of that type of quantum politics. I mean, look at Ethiopia and Eritrea. Uh, uh, again, decades long of, of struggle and war that has been transformed practically through a port, which is the port in Asab. So that is a new way of building in uh, uh, economic cooperation as uh, a way of, of, of building security instead of uh, uh, you know, resorting to uh, the security measures of of defense and deterrence and, and counterattacks. Fantastic. So, our fourth question: China brokered a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia as Riyadh and the other Middle East countries seek to join the BRICS, and this gives the impression that the region is turning eastwards. What is driving this strategic shift? Now, uh, if we use this concept of apolarity and connectivity as a major uh, uh, principle of, of quantum politics, then we really cannot talk about East and West, North and South. Global South on its own does not mean much without the global North, because we need that connectivity between them. We need the movement of energy, of goods, of money, of people, of information, among all of these. So uh, practically uh, looking at BRICS as an instrument of the East where, let's say, uh, uh, institutions, uh, the print one institutions are uh, uh, instruments of the West, I think is a flawed way of looking at it. It's pretty much building bridges to both. And if you want to be able to uh, move goods, let's say, uh, from China all the way to Europe or to China or Latin America, you will need those type of in, uh, institutions and you need to be able to connect to all of these. So uh, I don't subscribe to this concept that this is uh, uh, seen as part of. But the shift, the real shift is that uh, China is not on the opposite side anymore as it used to be during the Cold War. This is not an ideological uh, alignment that uh, countries in the region are taking to China. Uh, dealing with China does not mean becoming uh, socialist or communist. Uh, what it means is that this is a natural flow of, of trade, of goods, of money, of people moving from one direction and to another, and you want to open those arteries of, of that trade. And I think that is the real uh, uh, shift strategic shift is that there is no more polarity in this region, in this world order. Uh, China is as important as India, not India versus China. 
China is as important to the U.S. It's not the U.S. versus China. Russia is as important as EU. EU is not versus uh, China. I think that is the real uh, shift that is happening. It's not the fact that China is brokering uh, uh, the deal. Now, there are other elements to China's role in the region and in the world uh, that could be addressed when, when you're talking about the brokering of the deal. But uh, that is uh, uh, the way China is moving from being a one-dimensional superpower into a multi-dimensional superpower, if you want. The BRICS brings together countries of different ideological foundations. Are we seeing the end of ideological divides in international politics? Yes, I, I, I would agree with that. We are seeing an end of the ideological divide. And I think this end did not start today. Uh, this end started uh, back in the 90s when the Berlin War sort of uh, fell down and we emerged into the globalized world. China and Russia, both of them joined the WTO. Uh, all of them became part of the uh, globalized world order. Uh, uh, flow of energy, of goods, of food uh, happened between Russia and, 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 and the U.S. U.S. is buying uh, nuclear fuel from, from Russia. Uh, that was a world that is globalized. And I think the majority of the countries, at least in this region, have woke up to this, uh, that now we're in a globalized world. We need to work together. The biggest problem came in when the Cold War mentality started to creep on us after the Russian invasion of, of, of Ukraine. Because now we will have to think of the world as two camps, the camps that is with Russia and the camp that is against Russia. And I think this is what's creating the type of, of uh, you know, pose and relationship. Are we really going back to the world, Cold War? Are we going back to polarity? Is there going to be two different worlds and you can belong to one of them and not? I think this is exactly what was described by uh, uh, the U.S. permanent representative to the U.N. Uh, when she was talking about fence sitting. There is no fences in the globalized world order. And I don't think there will be fences in an interconnected world order. It is not affinity to a certain ideological approach uh, uh, dealing with Russia uh, despite the, the war right now, does not mean a gratification of Russia. It's a gratification of the concept of open uh, arteries of connectivity. Uh, and that does not mean that Russia is right or wrong. The same thing applies to Syria. Opening up to Syria does not mean a gratification of, 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 uh, of Assad. It means that Syria as a country is important. As a state, it's important. And the connectivity, state-to-state -state connectivity is very important. And I think that is the type of uh, 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 shift that is uh, uh, happening, that it's, it's not ideological uh, in, 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 in uh, foundation anymore. Hmm. I always think it's interesting whenever we talk about the relationship between contemporary international relations or contemporary international politics and ideologies or the concept of the post-ideological world. So thank you ever so much for that. Now, one of the Last questions I'd like to ask you, not the final question, but one of our last questions, is in what ways has the war in Ukraine affected, had an impact or a knock-on effect on the regional politics of the Middle East? 
I think the uh, war in Ukraine is not different from um, many of the conflicts that we have seen in this region. Uh, but the major, major difference between uh, what is happening in Ukraine is this uh, global realignment that is uh, uh, coming out of it. Many people uh, in, in, you know, in, in our community uh, have woken up to the fact that we're actually importing uh, grains from Ukraine and Russia, oils, seeds. Uh, uh, that connectivity, you know, was not obvious. We would go to the supermarket, buy our stuff. Many, very few people would look at the back and see where is it coming from. But the, the fact, the reality is that when things started to be interrupted because of that war, it made people realize that we need to protect those lines of communication, uh, of, of uh, uh, connectivity even more. The same thing happened when uh, people went into lockdown after uh, COVID-19. Uh, this is something that was not fathomable for, for a lot of people. Uh, our national security policies didn't really include a component that deals with pandemics. Uh, and we here in the UAE, as many people around the world, have lost for that pandemic more people than they have lost to any uh, terrorist uh, attack or, or uh, a conflict, a military conflict. Uh, and it begs that question of, of how do we look at our uh, you know, security? What does security mean in a globalized world? And I think uh, the war in Ukraine uh, reminded us that those conflicts are not secluded. Not the conflict in Yemen, not the conflict in, in, in Ethiopia, not the conflict in, in, in between Pakistan or the tension between Pakistan and India. All of these are interconnected to our lives. And I, I think that is the major uh, uh, realization out of that uh, conflict. Thank you, Mohammed. It's always so important to talk about those global relations where a conflict has an effect on regions outside of the region in which that conflict is taking place. So thank you for that. So speaking about globally thinking, one of the questions that we ask every single person that comes on the podcast, and if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll know exactly what this question is, <laughs> is what is it to think globally for you? I think being global is the only way to be. If you look at the, uh, what we call now the digital revolution, in a digital world, there is no uh, boundaries, uh, geographical boundaries. Uh, we're conducting this fantastic discussion uh, in in a in a two different time zones, uh, and uh, again, it's uh, that geographical divide does not stop people from connecting with each other. And I think the more digital we will be, and we are going to be more digital, there will be uh, more global approaches to, to questions. Uh, people look and say, why would a country like the UAE or Saudi Arabia, uh, why are they interested in space? Why are they interested in Mars? Uh, these are the global challenges we are going to face as humanity. So becoming global means we need to go back to our human uh, nature as people who are looking at the world as in its totality, rather than people who are confined by their geopolitical uh, realities. 
And I think this is the major shift that is uh, uh, driving a lot of those things. It, it would have been a different time 50 years ago if the, uh, the current uh, situation in Ukraine is happening uh, because of the lack of relationship or even importance of countries like uh, China or Russia or even Ukraine than they are today because of globalization. Hmm. Once again, it's my favorite question to ask because we get so many different answers all the time to that one. Thank you ever so much for contributing to that. <laughs> okay, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. So thank you ever so much, Mohammed Bahroun, for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Uh, thank you very much. This is uh, a pleasure and thank you for your considerate questions uh, uh, and, and for reading the article. <laughs> That was a really good one. <laughs> that was really, really interesting. Okay, Ismail, what do you think? Uh, Karen, I really think the latest events in the Middle East are somehow interesting, at least to me. <laughs> one is the recent Arab-Israeli normalization is have not attracted so much backlash from the Arab public. Unlike in 1978, when Egypt normalized relations with Israel and President Awar Sadat, made a surprise visit to Tel Aviv. Back then, Cairo was subjected to diplomatic isolation and the present hour Sadat was demonized, uh, something that uh, led to his assassination in 1981. Then the second recent development in the Middle East that sparked the interest is the unexpected rapprochement deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, since the Iranian Islamic Revolution in 1979, Arabs viewed Iran as a new threat that is trying to dominate the region. This fear of the perceived threat was a catalyst in Saddam Hussein's invasion of Iran, perhaps to nip the imagined threat in the bud. But today at a time when Tehran is much stronger and more aggressive than it was in 1979, then I think it's justified to ask why this sudden embrace between Arabs and Iran. And I'm really glad that Mohammed Bahroun has enlightened us about the context in which these developments are happening. And that's the quantum approach to international politics, an approach that defies historical animus, ideological divide, and the polarity foundations. It was such a brilliant analysis by Mr. Bahroun. Yeah, I agree. I think there are lots of elements of Mr. Bahroun's analysis which are missing from other kinds of discourse about the region. And so it was really interesting to actually be able to have that conversation with him. So yeah, I love that. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. Please do remember that at Thinking Global, we are part of e-international relations, the world's leading open access website for students and scholars of international relations. If you've never checked out e-international relations, all you have to do is type into any web browser e-ir.info and there you'll be able to find loads of articles, reviews, books, just tons of content on international relations. So go and check it out. Also, if you haven't done so, please, please like, share, subscribe and follow on this episode and go check out our social media on e-international relations. That's on Twitter, that's on Facebook and that's on LinkedIn. So go on, go check it out. <laughs> I'd also like to say a big thank you to the E-International Relations podcast team. That is Edward Curry, Tusharika Decker, Abigail Glynn, Nigel Huckle, 
Daniel McDade and Eduardo Pieroni. Thanks, guys. You are amazing. Music was also by Material Music. So, I guess there's only one last thing to say. And that's, I've been Kieran O'Meara. I have been Ismail Aden. And together, we've been Thinking Thinking Global. Global.